changed by you. We want to know you as you truly are. And so we come to your word to hear what you have spoken to us. Lord, I pray for each of us uh, here this morning that your spirit would be active, uh, that your word would uh, be like the snow outside that doesn't return to the heavens, but it, it waters the earth. And as you send your rain and snow, vegetation grows up. And so, Lord, would, would good fruits just come up from the soil of our hearts this morning as your word waters us. I ask this for your glory and that you would be just greatly displayed here among us. It's in your name we pray. Amen. This is Isaiah 40, verses 9 to 11. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. John 4, 19 to 26. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Exodus 40, 1 through 2. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, On the first day of the first month you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. Then verse 33. He erected the court all around the tabernacle and the altar, and hung up the veil for the gateway of the court. Thus Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, then they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day, and there was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. John fourteen six through 11. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father. It is enough for us. 
Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on the account of the works themselves. Well, it may seem elementary to start this series on the character of God with a sermon that essentially says that God is spirit and not a physical being. Uh, you might say, well, isn't that common knowledge? I mean, that sounds really like religion 101. How else would we picture deity? And yet I think uh, at the same time, there are so many questions to wrestle with when we consider that God is a spiritual being and not a physical one. Uh, the questions that arise are might go something like, well, where is God right now? How do I find him? What does God look like? How do we speak to God? Does he ever speak back? How do you know if God's happy? How do you know if he's angry? And these questions just go on and on. We hear them out of the mouths of some of our youngest children, don't we? And then as we grow into adulthood, these kinds of questions, they just get more complex. Where was God when this happened? Why won't you answer this prayer, God? Do you really see me? Do you know what I'm going through? Are you there? I think we all wrestle with these kinds of questions or these wanderings given various circumstances. And then we add to this that we live in a society that defines reality almost um, strictly by what is physically observable. And so we find uh, it, it can be hard to have space in our definition for just what is real for a God who is a spiritual being. After all, you can't um, look up his address on uh, Google Maps. You can't knock on his door. You can't invite him to coffee. But we modern people aren't the only ones confused by spiritual reality. The people in Jesus' day were confused as well. If you have a Bible with you, I invite you to open to John chapter 4, because we're going to look at some of this whole encounter of Jesus with the woman at the well, which spans verses 1 through 42. And what we'll see is there are at least three times, there might actually be a fourth, where Jesus speaks about spiritual realities, and yet the people he's speaking to can only conceive of physical reality. And it leads to a lot of confusion. So let me, let me just take you through uh, the three times that I see in the text where Jesus is speaking about spiritual reality and he's misconstrued for speaking about something physical. The first is on the topic of water. Um, and Jesus is meeting this Samaritan woman who came to a physical well for physical water to quench her physical thirst. But look at verse 10. Jesus says to the woman, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Now the woman's response in verse 15 conveys her confusion. 
She says, sir, well, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. You see, Jesus is offering this woman spiritual water to quench a deep, unsatisfied spiritual thirst in her, but she completely misunderstands him because his words don't fit inside the box of the physical world, and that's all that she can conceive of. Then we can go down to where we entered into the text in verse 19, and we see the same thing happen with the topic of worship. The woman speaks about the worship of God, but do you notice she's completely stuck on physical locations? She's saying, well, Samaritans worship on this mountain, the Jews worship in Jerusalem. Which one is it? Where do we need to be physically? Where, where is God physically? Is he on the high places? Is he in the temple? Where do we need to go, Jesus? And in verse 21, he essentially says, well, neither. And he gets to the heart of the matter in verse 24. He says, God is spirit. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so again, he's, he's taking her physical ideas and shifting, and he's talking about spiritual realities. And if we keep reading, keep your eyes there in the passage, after he's done talking to the woman, the disciples come back, and the whole thing happens again with the topic of food. You see, Jesus, the whole reason he's at that well is that he's weary, and so he's resting. So he's stopped at the well. The disciples have gone into the town nearby to get food. They come back, and we read that they urge Jesus to eat, which sounds reasonable, right? He's weary, he's hungry, eat something. But look at verse 32. He says to the disciples, he says, I have food to eat that you do not know about. To which, again, they're lost. They ask, verse 33, has anyone brought him something to eat? And then Jesus clarifies in verse 34. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In other words, Jesus isn't talking about physical food, right? He's not talking about bread. He's not talking about some nourishment that you put in your mouth and feel satisfaction in your stomach. He's talking about a spiritual equivalent, namely doing the will of his Father that satisfies the longings of his soul in a way that, yes, might be similar to the way bread satisfies the stomach, but is different, right? It's, it's deeper. And so what is Jesus' main point about spiritual things? What's his main point with the water and worship and food? It's not merely that the spiritual realm exists and we just need to be aware of it. Nor is he saying that spiritual reality exists to somehow enhance our physical material life in some way. Excuse me for just a moment. Colds do not respect the preaching calendar. So Jesus' point about spiritual things, it's, it's not just, hey, you need to be aware that this other realm exists, and it's not, 
hey, this other realm, these spiritual truths exist to somehow supercharge your physical existence. What Jesus is saying, is he not, is that these spiritual realities, the spiritual water, the spiritual worship, the spiritual food, is actually more real. It's more significant. The spiritual needs are more urgent than the physical realm. You see, he's trying to get through to this woman that the spiritual water he offers, it's not merely life-sustaining. Like, like the water she'd pull up out of that well, that, that would keep her alive for a few days, right? She doesn't drink the physical water, she dies. But what does he say about the water that he has to offer? He says it actually creates life. It is living water. And he's trying to get through to the disciples that, that we as humans, we don't just have physical cravings for bread a few times a day. No, there is a deeper spiritual hunger for God that supersedes our body's hunger for food. And then with worship, Jesus is replacing categories of physical temples and high places with a spiritual reality of worshiping God in spirit and truth. And so in all of these things, Jesus is drawing attention to spiritual reality as more significant, more urgent, more real than the physical realm that the woman and these disciples can't seem to think outside of. You see, to Jesus, the spiritual is more significant because of what he tells the woman in verse 24. Look down at verse 24. The first three words are crucial. He says, God is spirit. God is spirit. He doesn't have a body. He doesn't have some physical uh, manifestation that, oh, he's there and not there. No, he's spirit. And so if God is spirit, that means that spiritual reality has always existed because God has always existed. If God is spirit, that means spiritual reality is everywhere because God is everywhere. If God is spirit, that means that all the physical reality, everything that you have seen this morning, everything you've touched, this floor that we're standing on, is simply the result of spiritual creativity and power. Because God, who is spirit, created it all. It's, it's, it's like if, it's like we live inside of a painting. That's our physical existence. If you could imagine an artist painting a painting and it has some people in it, maybe a scene, if they could come alive and talk, that's kind of how we live here. And what Jesus is trying to do to the, this woman, the disciples, and us this morning, he's trying to get us to see depth, right? People on a canvas, they have height and width. They don't have depth. There's this whole other dimension that exists for the artist that doesn't exist within the wooden frame of that painting. And that's what Jesus is, is trying to get us to see. Or think of it this way. To most of us, we imagine spiritual beings as these ghost-like, half-seen things. But the physical world, that's what's real. That's what we can grab a hold of. 
That's what we can see with our eyes. But Jesus and the biblical authors actually saw the universe in the opposite way. They saw the spiritual as the permanent and the physical as the ghost-like. Because they describe physical existence as a mist, James 4.14, or as smoke, Isaiah 51.6, or as leaves that fall from the trees, Isaiah 34.4, or as withering grass, Psalm 90, or as an evening shadow, Psalm 109. These are not pictures of solid things, right? These are pictures of things that fall, they're there in a moment, and they're gone. And they say, that's what this physical world that, that we think is so real, that's what it's like. It's transient. It is the spiritual that lasts forever. It's the spiritual that has real solidity to it. And for you and me, our, our biggest spiritual need And our greatest source of spiritual comfort is knowing the God who is spirit. That's what Jesus is trying to get at. We can hear it in the urgency in his voice with the woman, starting in verse 21. Look look again at verse 21. Jesus said to her, hear the urgency here, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming When neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father, and if you skip down to 23, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Spirit is, or for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. So what hour is coming? What hour is now here? What is God the Father seeking? He's seeking worship, spiritual worship of a spiritual God, communion between physical beings, namely people and God. Now, this will seem like a very small thing to us if our primary reference for what is true and real is just the physical world. If what's really important to us is the job that we work, the house that we own, our physical health, then the fact that a God who is spirit is seeking people to worship him will not seem very relevant. But if you can imagine that third dimension taking a step back from the canvas of your life to see that third dimension of the spiritual world, that there is a God who is spirit who created it all. And he is the one who is seeking out people to worship him. Then this is a monumentally wonderful thing. This God is pure life and light and love, and truth. And he is reaching into the ghost town of our world for worshipers. Isn't that remarkable? And so what I want to ask, because this now thrusts just a really important question to the forefront of this text, 
how can we who exist in the land of vapors and shadows and smoke know such a God? How can we know a God who is spirit? How does that work? Because if you try to use a lot of the, a lot of the same principles for how you relate, for instance, to one another, um, it causes all kinds of problems, right? If, if I want to have a conversation with Ryan, like I wanted to yesterday, I look him up in my phone, I hit dial, and I can hear his voice. Talking to God doesn't work in quite the same way, does it? There are different realities at stake. So how do we know a God who is spirit? That's why I want to take the rest of our time together talking about. What we quickly realize when we ask this question is that knowing this kind of God, a spiritual being, ultimately hinges on God revealing himself to us. Did you catch that in Jesus' statement to the woman? He didn't say, you need to go find this God who is spirit. He says, the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so God is spirit. We just can't go and find him. He must seek us, reveal himself to us, enter into our realm if we are to know him, if we are to worship him. Now, if we scour the Bible, and many of them are here in this text, we find four main ways that God reveals himself, though he is unseen to our physical eyes, he reveals himself to us. So let's just walk through those four different ways that God reveals himself. The first is creation. Just like any created thing, whether it's music or a painting or literature, God's world reflects something of God and what he is like by its very existence. So just like we can know something about Beethoven by listening to his symphonies, or we can know something about Monet by looking at his paintings, or something of Jane Austen by reading her novels, we, we can sense their creativity, their skill, their design. So we can know something of God by examining his world. Let me give you a few texts that that make this plain. In Acts 17.27, Paul says that God created the world in such a way that the order, the order that exists in the world exists, quote, that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward him and find him. In other words, there are arrows in creation pointing to the creator. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Psalm 50 verse 6 says the heavens declare his righteousness for God himself is judge. And in Romans chapter 1, the apostle Paul says that all people are without excuse to deny God since, quote, what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. So these texts and others like them are telling us that God has purposefully designed creation to speak to us, to tell us about his existence if we don't suppress what we see. And so the height of the mountains, the breadth of the oceans, the variety of plant and animal life that we find, 
the expanse of the sky, the, the big flaming ball of, of fire that is the sun. All of creation is shouting at us about the nation of God. And, and when we see creation as a window into spiritual reality, instead of evidence that a spiritual being like God does not exist, well, then we can start to perceive God's beauty and his righteousness and his power and his kindness, his majesty through what he has made. He's revealing himself through creation, is he not? When you woke up this morning, I don't know what you thought about the snow falling outside. Um, because it's March and almost April, maybe, maybe we weren't, some of us weren't happy about it. I think snow is lovely. No matter what time of year, it falls. Why is snow beautiful? Well, it's to communicate something about the beauty of God. If I asked one of you to make it snow in Pittsburgh, do you know how much how many resources you'd need to, to get that uh, water up into the sky, to drop the temperature, to get these flakes to fall in our city, and yet God just does it overnight. Creation is revealing God. The second way that we can know this God who is spirit is through His Bible, His Word. See, within the created physical world, God has revealed himself even more specifically in this book. The Bible contains not only God's words, but also his works. And so not only do we find these explicit descriptions of who God is, like Exodus 34, verse 6, which says, The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That's an explicit description of God saying, This is what I'm like. Those are His words. But we also see His works that over hundreds and thousands of years, God demonstrates with the Israelites and with in the New Testament through Jesus and the church that He indeed is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is so patient in light of his people's many sins. He over and over welcomes them, calls them back to himself, forgives them. And so this book is so precious, not only because it makes claims about who God is, but because it establishes a proven track record for who God is. You see, brothers and sisters, if we, if we sit down in the morning or the evening or, or whenever you tend to open your Bible and, and you approach it to just get a little nugget of truth that might spur you on in the challenges of your day, you are just selling this book far short. The, the collection of stories, poems, history in this book, they are meant to reorient us our minds and our hearts to true reality. There to, it is to reorient us to God himself so that we think about our day in light of the greater spiritual reality that is God. Let, let's, uh, let's just do a lab together. Let, let's take an example. Um, James 1.17. If, if we could project James 1.17 for just a few moments. This is one verse. Let's just see, what can we learn about God from one verse? 
How does one verse reorient our mind and our hearts to God? James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. One verse. Really straightforward. Simple. What do we learn about God? How are we reoriented to God in this one verse? There are five things that I see. Maybe you see more. First, God is the giver of all good things. Right? It, it says that. God is the giver of all good things. And so that means, Nate, you do not have to climb over other people. You do not have to be consumed with securing what you feel like you need. Because God is a giver. He is generous. He is gracious. And so you, Nate, because you are his, you can be generous, you can be patient, knowing that he's got you covered. He gives you all good things. Second, we see that God's gifts are perfect. Meaning that if he gives me something today that I think is painful or something I wouldn't choose, I can rest not only in his goodness, I can rest in his wisdom. That if I saw things from his perspective, I would see that it is perfectly designed for me. Third, we see that God is a father. And what do great fathers do? Well, great fathers care about their kids. And so when I pray to this God, when I pray to my father, I don't have to feel like a bothersome responsibility to him. I don't have to feel like I'm a nagging servant. No, I am a child. And great fathers love to hear from their children. Fourthly, we see that God is a father of light, meaning that he is what he appears to be. He doesn't hide. He doesn't dwell in shadow. He doesn't say one thing and do another. So I can rest that he is being truthful in all that he says and all that he does, all that he promises and fifthly, we see, well, God does not change. I don't have to fear him waking up on the wrong side of the bed, deciding tomorrow, that Nate guy, he's just too much trouble for me. No, I can rest in his faithfulness. He does not change. All of that, brothers and sisters, is packed into one verse. Do you know how many verses there are in your Bible? Over 31,000. And in each one, God is reaching out to us so that we can know Him. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, those 31,000 verses are not random sayings and stories. We just kind of picked one up, which might give you the... Um, the idea that, hey, this Bible, it's, it's like a collection of fortune cookie sayings, right? It's, it's like 31,000 fortune cookies, and you just kind of dip in and pick one out. That's not what the Bible is at all. These 31,000 verses are building in a unified story about a person. They're building in a unified story about God's Messiah. The Messiah is an anointed king that God would send to restore fellowship between God and His people. You see, humanity 
once had ready access to the spiritual realm. You start back on page one of your Bible, you'll read that in the beginning, God created our very first parents, Adam and Eve, and he placed them in a garden called Eden. And he walked with them there in broad daylight. In other words, this place called Eden, it was an overlap of the physical and the spiritual. It's where heaven met earth. But what happened was that our first parents, Adam and Eve, they sinned against God, and they soon found themselves shut out of Eden. We would we, read that a fierce spiritual being called a cherubim was placed there at the entry with a flaming sword. Message is clear. Can't go back in that way, right? You are sent out. There is no re-entry. And from that point onward, humanity, because of their sin, was separated from God's presence. Now we read this morning in Exodus that that the glory of God would later fill the tabernacle and and if we keep reading the temple, and and this is God's uh, redemptive plan through Israel. He, He calls a people to himself and he puts his presence in their tabernacle, in their temple. And yet, in the middle of that temple, in the middle of that tabernacle, is the room where God dwelt. It was called the Holy of Holies. And do you know what was across the front of that room? It was a thick curtain. Do you know what was on the curtain? Cherubim. Even when God's presence came and dwelt with the people of Israel, they were reminded of the no-entry sign from Eden. They were reminded that we just can't waltz into God's presence. We just can't walk with Him in broad daylight anymore. As one of my favorite children's books says it, it it says that the curtain was a reminder that because of your sin, you can't come in. Now the Messiah that the, the Bible is building to would change all that. One prophecy about His work says this, this is uh, Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. It says, and no, one, and no longer shall each person teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. As Jesus meets this woman at the well, She asks him, are you that person? Are are you the Messiah? To which Jesus replies in verse 26, I who speak to you am he. I'm that Messiah, Jesus says. We, We think of Jesus as God incarnate. And so He is. He is God in the flesh. We hear Him say that He is a picture of the Father. We heard Him say that to Philip. Whoever has seen Me has seen the Father. But Jesus went much further than that. He didn't merely show us what the Father is like. Jesus willingly sacrificed Himself and paid for the sins of His people on the cross. And when that happened, the curtain in the temple with that no entry sign tore from top to bottom. 
The curtain that served as this long-standing reminder that, hey, because of your sin, you can't come in, was gone. In other words, because of the Messiah, humanity can know God again. Access to the spiritual realm, to God's very presence, is opened once more because of what Jesus accomplished. And anyone who trusts in his sacrifice for their redemption, their restoration to God, well, they are welcomed in to that holy of holies. They are welcomed in beyond the curtain, into God's very presence. So through faith in Jesus Christ, any of us today can know the author of all reality. We can can know this God who is spirit through Jesus Christ. And so God is revealing himself through creation. He's revealing himself through his word, the Bible. He's revealing himself through Jesus Christ. The fourth way that God reveals himself is through his church. Now the church is the body of people who respond to Jesus by trusting him and following him. And when we do that, the death that he died on the cross and the resurrection life that he had in raising from the dead becomes ours. Romans 6 verse 4 says, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Now here's the thing that we have to keep in mind. The newness of life that we get when we trust in Jesus is spiritual life. It's not physical life. That text isn't saying that that Christians live an extra 40 years, right? We all have the same lifespan. But the life that we have is spiritual life. We see uh, this take place when Jesus tells this woman at the well that he is indeed the Messiah. What happens next? Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? You see what happens? She's seeing that third dimension. She's seeing all of a sudden there is way more to life than this well, securing my water, taking care of my physical needs. She leaves the well behind. She leaves the physical water behind. She leaves the debate about physical worship behind because her eyes were open to spiritual realities. She realized that this man standing before her was the Messiah, was the fulfillment of all of God's promises. And if he is the fulfillment of all of God's promises, that means that the God whom she has never seen was real. And in that moment, her life just reoriented around spiritual reality instead of the physical needs that brought her to the well that day. She is seeing things that she never saw before. And it's people like this, people who have been awakened to the reality of God, the church, 
whom God uses to reveal himself then to others. Jesus ends up staying in that town by that well for two more days. And we read down in verse 42 that the people eventually say to this woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Do you see what happened? Jesus didn't march into the town. I mean, he's God. He knows what's going to happen, right? He knows that there's going to be revival in this town. He could have marched into the town square and started teaching, and revival could have resulted. That's not how he chose to work. That's often not how he chooses to work. Instead, he approached one woman, and her eyes are open. And now through her, This testimony goes about about him that bring all of these people flocking to him. And they believe. And we don't know what happens, but we can surmise that now this group of people that probably became a church now become a witness and a testimony about this Savior in their town and beyond. This is the way God often works in the world. He awakens somebody or a group of people to spiritual reality, and then he uses those people to awaken others. And so, brothers and sisters, are you one of those people who has been awakened to spiritual reality? Have you been awakened to the reality of this God who is spirit through Jesus Christ? Has your world expanded, so to speak, to prioritize spiritual truth, meet spiritual needs, do spiritual good, and love the God who is spirit above anything else in this physical world? If not, he is reaching out to you today. He is revealing himself to you through creation. He's revealing himself to you through the scriptures. He's revealing himself to you, having sent his son for you. And he's revealing himself to you through his church gathered here. Knowing this God is true life, true satisfaction, true health, true peace. That your physical well-being can't even touch. There are many people who live great physical lives and are eaten inside with dissatisfaction. Who know no peace. Who are consumed with anxiety or fear or doubt or dread. It is evidence that there is much more to life than physical existence. And if you have been awakened to spiritual reality, then, oh yes, would we care for the physical needs among us and around us? But may we, like Jesus, see physical need as a doorway to talk about and meet spiritual needs. May we not shrink back from speaking of this God who is spirit. I know, I mean, we feel it in our bones, don't we? When we have an opportunity to speak about him, we just think, this person's going to say, yeah, right, if your God's real, show him to me. And we can't. He's spirit. He's not physical. But may we not shrink back from speaking of him to one another, 
to the lost? Because here's the reality, brothers and sisters. He is at work through you. Just as Jesus was at work drawing this town through the woman at the well, he is at work in our city, in our communities, in your workplace, in your family, through what he is doing in your life. You may not see him or hear him or feel him physically at the moment. You may not even feel strong or smart when you open your mouth to speak. But if we step out in faith, and this is challenging, but if we step out in faith, trusting in his grace to do its work, you and I will see the invisible, inaudible, untouchable, non-physical God do things we never dreamt possible. I can't imagine that woman waking up that day realizing that she would have to go to the well that she ever imagined she would be at the middle of a spiritual revival. That she would be in the middle of lights coming on for possibly dozens, if not hundreds of people. It was not in her mind. It was in God's mind. What might you not imagine for your day or your week that God has planned? If we are but faithful, After all, he is our confidence. He is our hope. Let's pray and ask that he would indeed work among us and reveal himself through us. I'll begin praying and then invite you to pray prayers of confession and uh, petition. Lord, we so often feel, or I so often feel, doubt or hesitancy because you are spirit, because you are not physical. Because I can't see a picture of you or go to some physical location where you are. And yet, God, you are everywhere. and You know everything. You see us no matter what our week was, no matter... Um, what we walked through this week, and you are indeed powerful and mighty and at work in your church and in your world and in your word through your Son. God, I pray that though we may oftentimes feel small and weak, God, that we would be bold and confident in you because we know that you work and you are on a mission to reveal yourself to us, to one another gathered in this place, to those who are currently lost and without hope and separated from you in the world. And so God, we we ask that you would do things that we this very day cannot even fathom for your name's sake. 